And the oldest surviving liturgical prayer of the church was a prayer addressed to, to Christ. Our Lord, come. And there's something clear here. Uh, that the early church continued to testify to Jesus Christ as Jesus Christ was God, the Savior of the world. And as we look at John, uh, we will see the same here. And I pray that as we look to our own testimonies, that they're not glorifying to what we have done and what we have accomplished, but what Christ has accomplished in us. So here we are going to read from John 1, um, 19 through 34. As Audrey gets it ready. All right. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him another question, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you, the, are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. These men had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor prophet? Who gives you, right, who gives you the authority to baptize? And John answered them, "I I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When we think about sharing our personal testimonies, if we are inclined to, right, when we proclaim the gospel, so be it. Right, so be it, meaning to, to, if we are to share our personal journey, our personal story, so be it. But also let us be sure to incorporate our own personal stories within the context, within the biblical story of Jesus. Our own testimonies are worth little if they do not include the historical truth claims that form the heart of the Christian faith. If we fail to preach Christ, we are leaving the self, our self, on the throne. We are giving testimony about ourselves and not about God. There's a quote from Pastor Trevin Wax about sharing your personal testimony. I don't know if you've ever been through like a, a class or maybe a seminar on kind of like Christian witnessing, on evangelism, on how to share your testimony. Or maybe you've been um, 
you've sat in front of people's testimonies. You had that experience. Um, at a church that I was um, I pastored at before, we would, um, every Good Friday, our Good Friday service would be something called Testimonies from the Cross. And it would be, um, we'd worship in song, we'd hear scripture reading, um, but the main crux, <laughs> in, a, in a sense, was people coming forward to share about what Jesus Christ has done in their lives, how he has transformed them. I think there are other testimonies that I've heard, and the testimony goes kind of in a in a formula like this. I was like this, you know, and it could be something shocking, right? Like this world I once lived in, um, it's the sinful world I once had, drugs, alcohol, addiction, things like that. And then um, maybe like a quick thing, that, then Jesus saved me, which is good, right? That's a good part of the testimony, Jesus saved me. But then it quickly goes on to, now look at me, I'm better, I've done these things, I've accomplished much. And Jesus becomes merely a turning point in the story and not the transformative power of the entire story. If you think about that and what kind of testimonies that you've heard and you remember, do they point to Christ? Because when we look at John's testimony, and if you look at other testimonies in the New Testament, Stephen's, right in Acts 7, right before he gets stoned to death, because of his testimonies about Jesus Christ. It wasn't like, look at me, I've done better, I've done that. Like, he would have been stoned to death for that in front of the Jewish leaders. But it was a testimony about Jesus Christ. Or Paul's testimony, as he's trying to make his way towards Caesar a number of times, he gives a testimony of Jesus Christ. And the whole point is so that he might get to Caesar and proclaim the gospel to him. Well, here we have John's testimony. He's testifying about Jesus. And he does this in three ways. He testifies that he is a voice in the wilderness warning God's people to repent as there is one coming. So there's a, there's a past that's moving forward to a time that a Savior, the Messiah, the Christ is coming. When the Christ does come, he points not to himself, but he points to Jesus, the Lamb of God. We'll take a look at that. And then he also points to Jesus approved by the Father, by the power of the Spirit. So John is asked a number of questions by these, um, these Jewish leaders who are sent by their head honchos to come. They want to know, who's this guy coming out of the wilderness? He's eating locusts, right? These giant bugs dipped in honey. That sound good? No. He's got he's got a, like a ratty beard. He looks like a homeless man. <laughs> he's wearing camel hair. Probably not the softest of garments, like cashmere or something like that. This is this guy, kind of this ratty homeless guy. I mean, think imagine about that. This guy does not look like he's a leader of any religion. And so these Jewish leaders are wondering, who's this guy? that looks like this, that's coming out of the wilderness, that's really got no kind of history we know about. Who is he? Why is he baptizing? By what authority? So they go, and they ask him a couple of questions. They say, who are you? He says, I am not the Christ. I think the reason he leads with this right off the bat is not because of Jesus, 
but because in first century Judaism, in first century Rome, these Jews under Roman oppression, right, they have a long history of oppression and slavery from Egypt, Babylonia, the Babylonian captivity, not being a nation, being a nation under the rule of another nation. And he, what does he do? He says, no, I'm not this Messiah. I'm not this one that has come to set you free from these political chains. Everybody was looking for a savior in the first century. So he doesn't point to himself, he points to Christ. I think this is helpful for the way that we think about our own testimony and how we testify, is that do we point to Christ or are we the hero of our own story? It's a funny, funny story that I'll tell, um, and I, if you've been around me long, long enough, you've probably heard this before, but about a year, um, i trying to think when I went, 2011, so seven years ago, maybe it was 2012, I think it was 2012, six years ago, pop, it just popped up on my Facebook like timeline history, okay, it says, um, I was in Tacoma, Washington this past week, about six years ago, um, with my friend Nick Gomes, and we were at this... Um, kind of immersion, this church immersion, and how to live in community with one another. There's a church called um, Soma Community. Soma um, is Greek for body, right? The body of Christ, the Soma of Christ. Um, and there's this church out there called Soma Communities. And how they live together in communities, how they have hospitality and they show hospitality. And the pastor at the time, um, the one who, who was the church planter that started that church, um, was, is uh, named Jeff Vanderstel. And he shares about a neighbor that he had um, him and his, his wife and his family um, decided to kind of hunker down in this neighborhood and try to get to know their neighbors and love them and share the love of Christ with them. And um, his neighbor was, uh, who had experienced tragedy, her husband had died, and she became, after that, became a recluse and a hoarder. And her, and her probably beautiful home was falling apart. She had cars in the backyard, like half-buried, vines and all this stuff growing all over the place. And she, even in this would purpose purposefully like knock their trash cans over with her car when she would leave just out of like just kind of the spite and anger and frustration in her heart about her life circumstances and where she was coming from and as this family got to know her she would come over and they she would eventually open up her her life and let them come over and help clean up her yard and some of the things going on there and so they're you know talking about jesus and how jesus transforms them and she had this great loneliness in her life because of her husband. And she starts talking with the husband and wife and um, Pastor Jeff. And he says, um, as they're talking, she's, she's going on and on about the kind of man she's looking for. Kind of to take over in her life the, that role of her husband who had passed away and needed that companionship and um, that friendship once again. And um, she's lifting off these things, all these things about what the kind of man she wants and she gets tongue-tied and she's like I don't I just don't know Jeff you know what I want I want a man like you right in front of her her wife and this is an older woman so it was kind of funny but it was also kind of awkward right this this single woman next door wants a husband like her neighbor who's a husband and whose wife was right there pretty funny and um I think at times like that there's a, there's, a, there's a choice we can make. And I've done this a number of times, I think, in the, where I want to glorify myself. 
well, you know, like, I, you know, I understand that because, like, yeah, you know, I work hard and I'm trying to do all these things. And I can see how you'd want a guy like me, blah, blah, blah. But you know what he said? He goes, you don't see me. You only see the good things that are because of Jesus in me. And that's what he says to this woman, Nikki. He points to Christ. He says, you're ultimately not looking for a man to replace that loneliness. You're looking to, for a savior to save you from your loneliness and your sins. And he points to Christ. He says, no, that's not me. I am not your savior. I am not the Christ. I am pointing you to, to him. They ask him, are you, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? He says, no, that's not me either. He is a prophet, though. Um, I think sometimes we, we think of the Old Testament as ending where Matthew begins, when in fact the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, ends with Jesus, but it ends with John the Baptizer as the last Old Testament prophet, that one in the wilderness calling forth and pointing towards the Savior. That's where the Old Testament actually ends. And the, the scripture um, we read after our confession of sin about getting a new heart and the Spirit going within you, that's the new covenant and begins with Christ being baptized and the Spirit coming down on him. That's Ezekiel pointing to this new covenant, this promise. And so they finally are fed up. If you're not Christ, if you're not the prophet, who are you? So in good testimony fashion, John quickly moves from himself to Christ. His purpose is based on the one he is testifying about. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Prepare yourselves because the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is greater than the prophet, greater than Elijah, greater than me, greater than you, he is coming. And they ask him, why are you baptizing? If you're not these guys, why are you baptizing? So the the question behind the question is these Jewish leaders who are all about their kind of hierarchical structures and kind of making laws upon laws, where where does your authority to baptize come from? This is actually a good question. It's, I don't think it's a question that you say, well, they're, you know, I think the Pharisees often get a bad rap about everything, and there are some things about them that are actually good to ask. And then ask of ourselves, by who authority are you baptizing? And his authority goes beyond them, it goes to Christ. The call that he has as the last prophet of the Old Testament. This question, this is kind of a side jaunt here, but it's the question I ask myself myself often. By what authority do we do such things? By what authority do I, as a minister of the gospel, give out the Lord's Supper? By what authority do I, as a minister of the gospel, baptize? And this is the question because I think there's some confusion within the church and outside the church about whose authority. I'm part of a... um, kind of a parachurch and outside the church uh, group that does Bible studies in CrossFit gyms. It's called Faith RX. And one of the, um, the sticking points that I, I have a lot is I see on their, um, like their social media accounts and stuff is that 
they're baptizing people at their events. And I say their events, even instead of ours, because when we have one here, there's, there's no way I would ever baptize anyone at a Faith Rx event. And I'll tell you why, because the authority to baptize does not come from me or from you as just individual Christians. It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from Matthew chapter 16, where he says to his disciples, he says to the apostles, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It's ministerial. It's the, the keys of the kingdom are ministerial, that we minister and care for people, but we also, it's declarative. Ministerial and, um, I can't say the word now, declar, declaration, right? Proclaiming. Declarative. Declarative. <laughs> declarative. Ministerial and declarative. Right? So we, um, we don't have, like, we don't have the, the keys of the state. Like, I'm not going to arrest you because you come to the Lord's table and you're not a Christian. Right? It's declarative. It says, um, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, come to the Lord's table. If you are not, watch and see what's going on and, and meditate on Jesus Christ and what he has done for you, that you might be changed by the power of the Spirit. And the same is true with baptism. It is not my authority that I baptize, but it's the authority of Christ that he has given to his apostles and to his disciples, who then have passed down to the elders of churches. The elders of the churches have the keys of the kingdom. We're not withholding them from anybody because the keys are for those who profess faith and repent and believe. But it's not for us as individual Christians to go out and just do these things. Because what is baptism? Baptism is identifying with Christ and is identifying with his body, and it's the entry right into the visible body of Christ. Saying, I am part of this body. And so we hear the profession of faith, and then by the authority of Christ, we baptize within the church, because you are the witnesses, and you are part of now part of the body in discipling this person, this new believer, or this new child that has come into the church. One of my, um, my cousin's, asked me if I baptized their daughter. Just in, and I said, well, why doesn't their church do it? Well, because they weren't part of a church. That's the keys of the kingdom. Be part of the church, and that's where the authority lies to do these things, to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes through the Lord's Supper, through the Word, through the sacraments. But John's baptism wasn't the baptism of Jesus Christ. He was pointing to the baptism of Christ. At this point, the coming of Jesus Christ, John is in the wilderness. His message is that the last days are here. They're coming. They're very soon. And that it's necessary for sinners to repent and be baptized as a symbolic representation of the cleansing of their sins, their desire to be forgiven. And the Jerusalem leaders sent priests to check this thing out. The theological police to find out, you know, this guy's not under our authority, so we got to make, we got to put an end to this. And John is preaching a, a message in which he's saying that the last days are near. So I am the voice, John says. This is his testimony. 
because he plays with them a little bit, because he knows they know their Bibles. And he knows that the voice crying out the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, is from Isaiah 40. He knows that. He knows that Isaiah 40 is a Messiah, prophetic Messiah passage. It's one of the most wonderful chapters in the Old Testament, right? Especially in times of distress, in times of discomfort, beautiful words of promise and comfort. um, Here's just one quick excerpt, and um, you can look and read through that chapter later today. Um, Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. I like this weightlessness, the removal of burden. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. That's all that's tied up in John saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. There's, it's, it's a messianic passage. And the next day Jesus comes to John. What does John say as he sees Christ coming? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. One of the early church uh, fathers, Irenaeus, um, was born in 130 AD, so a very short time after um, those that have had known Christ have passed away. He has a prayer that I think is just a wonderful prayer about the Lamb of God. It says, O Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Look upon us and have mercy upon us, you who are both victim and priest, both reward and redeemer. Keep safe from all evil those whom you have redeemed, our Savior of the world. The Lamb of God. There's so much imagery in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. We looked at Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's told he must sacrifice Isaac. And they get to the top of Mount Moriah. And Abraham's going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And they get the altar ready. Abraham was old and Isaac was carrying the wood. He has the knife for the sacrifice. And as they're making their way up the mountain, Isaac turns to his father, Abraham, and says, Father, we've got the wood and we've got the knife and we've got the fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Was it a lamb that was given? It was a ram stuck in the thicket. And Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son Isaac. It's almost as if the story is still saying I don't know if I've ever thought about this until now, but that, oh, God provided, there was a ram, to sacrifice the ram. But the question still remains, just as Isaac asked, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb that will take away the sins of the world? The ram is a sacrifice, but it's not the lamb. Nor were all those lambs that were sacrificed in the Jewish temple. The question still remains, where's the lamb? All that blood sacrificed 
and trenches going out away from the temple. Day after day, week after week, year after year, repeated again and again and again. Ask the question every year, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Fast forward to the Egyptian slavery of the Jewish people. Moses comes, the last of the plagues, death coming through Egypt, killing the firstborn. And yet how were they saved? The blood of the lamb on the wood doorposts of their homes covered their sins, protected them. And year after year, Passover after Passover, the question is, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? And John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness, answers that question. He says, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Here comes Jesus Christ. It baffles my mind when people say that the main point of the cross is not Christ paying the penalty for our sins. Kind of fancy words called penal substitutionary atonement. That Christ was the substitute for the penalty that we should have received and bore our sins and our death. The whole Old Testament is filled with this imagery. And John himself points to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is Jesus Christ. We, don't, we no longer have to ask where the Lamb is. And lastly, spirit. So John's testimony of a voice crying out in the wilderness pointing to the coming Messiah. And two, he says, behold the lamb. And three, the spirit. In that moment of baptism, when John baptizes Jesus Christ, God the Father announces his approval of Jesus as the Messiah. The heavens opened up, a voice echoes down, declaring to all those present, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And like a dove, the spirit came down from heaven upon Jesus. Like, can you just, I mean, just imagine yourself there, all this, say, hubbub, right? There's the homeless, locust, honey-eating, camel-wearing guy Nobody knows what his deal is about, um, except him and Jesus, really, who met each other. Remember, (laughs) in Elizabeth and Mary kind of were cousins and right near each other, and John leapt when Jesus was near him in his mother's womb, or this connection from then. And John's like, oh, my cousin, Jesus, here he comes. And he baptizes them, and everybody's quiet, wanting to know what's going on. There's some talk already about Jesus. Then God literally speaks about Jesus Christ. The Father found complete satisfaction and delight in his Son, who he loved. And your testimony is similar because that is what God has done to you.
for all those that have received the Spirit, that have repented and believed and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, right? They see him and you said, maybe you didn't say these exact words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, the world. What God did to Christ, he is doing to you. The Spirit has descended on you. God has said, that's my beloved daughter, that's my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Because he no longer sees you for your sins, but he sees you for Christ and his sinlessness. It's the fancy word is called imputation. That Christ took our sins upon himself. They were imputed, given to him, taken on him, and you have been imputed his righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Joe, of Ned, of Steve, of Micah, of all who profess faith in Jesus Christ and have received his spirit. You are washed, you are clean, you are pure, you are undefiled. He sees us through the window of his son's righteousness. And be certain, he sees you with delight. He no longer sees our sins and our failures, our competing desires, He sees us as we are now in Jesus Christ. If that is not hope, there is no hope. Because as believers, this is our hope. That we are no longer guilty, that we are no longer condemned, that we are no longer under the weight and burden of sin, but we have confessed, behold the Lamb of God who takes my sins away. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for this good news. We thank you for the testimony of John, who doesn't point to himself as the way, but points to Jesus Christ as the one we should prepare ourselves for, as the one that we should behold, as the one who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that we should be made aware of, behold, Look at, see, hear. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who takes away the sins of the world. And behold, he has the Spirit, just as was prophesied in Ezekiel. And that Spirit will come down upon you and give your heart of stone a transformation. It will take it and give you a heart of flesh. You will be given new life. So not only are our sins taken away, but our life is transformed and we are given new hearts, a new life, a new purpose. Let us live in it, we pray in your name. Amen.